Titus Pero looking for two. Doncaster straight. Can he do it again? Light up the world is getting up near the fence. But Pharo, Pharo dashed to the lead from Abbe Glenn and light up the world, followed by Aragen and Brave Warrior. But Gavin Eads goes for home on Pharo. Look at Auntie Mary. Auntie Mary out of the back. This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Pride's Easy Feed. Australian trainers are giving Pride's Racing Cube the thumbs up. These small but powerful extruded cubes provide the ultimate muscle fuel to help horses finish their races off while promoting gut health. Racing Cube is a set recipe formulation in which the same premium quality proteins and essential amino acids are used in every batch produced. Racing Cube's profile and digestibility allows you to feed approximately two to three kilos less per day than similar raw grain rations. It's salt-free to help reduce irritation if you've got a horse prone to stomach ulcers. Mornington trainer Jason Warren introduced his horses to Racing Cube early this year and is delighted with the results. We've had a great deal of success since making that change. So really pleased with Pride's and not only the Racing Cubes, they've got a number of other feeds that work well for us. Pride's Racing Cube is available in the popular 25 kilo bag, in bulk bags or straight into the silo if you prefer, giving you quality equine nutrition at a very economical price. Talk to your local rep about Racing Cube, another winner from the Pride's Easy Feed Stable. Trainers are giving it the tick of approval all around the nation. A record of 1,500 career wins, including a Cox Plate and two Victoria Derbies, clearly illustrates that Paul Jarman was one of the best jockeys of his generation. A generation that included riders like Roy Higgins, Harry White, Jim Johnson, Mick Mallion, Pat Highland, Gary Willits, just for openness. He rode two seasons in Ireland in the early 70s for trainer Kevin Prendergast, who had a high regard for Australian jockeys. Paul rode over 50 winners in each season there, and he won the historic Irish St Ledger on Connor Pass. He began his apprenticeship in 1962 under the tutelage of trainer Jack Basanko at the now defunct Epsom Training Centre. With the support of his master and several leading Melbourne trainers, Paul enjoyed spectacular success as an apprentice, winning three consecutive junior titles in the mid-1960s. He opted for an early retirement in 1987, not long after winning the Ascot Vale Stakes on the despised outsider Zephyr Cross at odds of 140 to 1. Still on the right side of 40, the proactive Jarman immediately began a TAFE course in building and construction, and before long, he was building and selling duplexes on the Gold Coast, a business he conducted successfully for 12 years. Now in retirement, at 75 years of age, Paul is a very keen fisherman. He loves nothing more than a crabbing expedition, and he has one other funny hobby, which we'll talk about later. I got him on the line. Paul Jarman, I'm delighted to catch up with you. How are you going, mate? Good, thanks, John. How are you? Good, thank you, Paul, and thanks for your time. Now, you can thank your old mate and fellow jockey, Stan Aiken, for instigating this podcast. He gave me your phone number. 
No worries, John. (laughs) (laughs) Not like Stan, is it? No, no. I I talk to him pretty regularly. He's he's going along good. Another very underrated writer in his era, uh, Paul. I'm sure most people agree. Mm. You surprise many people when you quit the saddle at 39 years of age. You were still very competitive, but your weight had become a bit of an issue and you certainly had nothing left to prove. Yeah, well, my weight was um, was getting harder and harder all the time and uh, I wasn't getting a great deal of rides and the less rides you get, you sort of, as harder is, it's harder to, you know, keep the weight off. So I was always wanting to shift up to Queensland and I thought, well, let's go. Mm. You know, to look at you... Uh, in as an apprentice, you were a little bloke. It's hard to believe that, you know, twenty odd years on, you were battling weight. Yeah, the whole family was uh, pretty stocky, um, and uh, but I had to uh, work hard to keep it off. Though when I was, in, I'll get the sauna mm. each race day, taking off two or three kilos and things like that. Well, when you quit the saddle, you didn't let the grass grow under your feet. You enrolled for a building and construction course at TAFE. You worked hard. You gained mm. your builder's licence. You were very focused on a brand new career. Yeah, so uh, I, well, I sort of wanted to do something and uh, I thought, well, that's what I'll do. And uh, no, it was, uh, it was good while it lasted. Mm. But your interest in building and construction must have taken seed somewhere in early life. Do you have any idea? Yeah, Where did it come that from? Was, that had been a builder. Ah. Yeah. And uh, I sort of must have rubbed off. Yeah, it certainly did. Mm. Well, you know, in the late 1980s, the Gold Coast was the place to be for any aspiring builder. You had the credentials, you had the vision, and you had the energy. But how did you get started? Um, oh, I just bought, bought a block of land and away I went. Mm, built on it? Yes, yeah. And uh, then sort of sold it and then bought another block of land and sort of just kept going like that for a while. Mm. Do you have any idea? How many duplexes you built and sold over those 12 Uh, years? Yeah, 10. Did you? Yeah. One a year? Yeah, yeah, that's how it worked out about, yeah. Mm. Well, during that 12 years, you you went at a frantic pace. You found a diversion in fishing and crabbing, and that interest continues to this day. You were telling yeah, me the I'll... other day, Paul, you've made many trips to the Great Barrier Reef with mates chasing the yeah. Red Emperor and the coral trout. Yes, uh, a friend of mine had a, uh, uh, Rob Bycroft, he, had a 60, he built a 60-foot uh, boat. And we used to leave here from the Gold Coast and uh, it used to take 44 hours to get up to the Swains Reef at the bottom of the Barrier Reef. And mm. we, uh, oh, I suppose made 30-odd trips up there backwards and forwards. Mm. And sometimes we'd take a crew up and then go into Yapoon, swap over, take another crew out, go fishing for a week and head home. 
Yeah, we go up to Moreton Bay and all over the place. Yeah, mm. it's good fun. It's a lovely part of the world, isn't it? Beautiful. Yeah, it really is. And were there any unproductive fishing expeditions or did you usually come home with a good haul? <clears throat> I usually catch them. Sometimes the weather was a bit scanty. You might have to, you know, the uh, weather warning, you might have to come in a little bit early and things like that. But mm. uh, no, most of the time pretty good. Mm. In fact, we're heading off in uh, July, but uh, this is on a charter, though. We, we sold the boat a couple of years back. Mm. Now we get now we sort of sit back and get looked after. Mm. Well, I learned something the other day when you and I were chatting on the phone. I know nothing about mud crabs or how you <laughs> catch them, but you were telling me you've got to get in close to the bank near the mangrove swamps. That's where you find yeah. them. Yeah, get in, get in amongst the mangroves and... Uh, yeah, and generally, whereas no one else is, that's a bit, that's a good idea too. <laughs> you want an exclusive spot if possible. If if, if possible, yeah, it's pretty hard on the broadwater here, but yeah, yeah, find a spot occasionally. Now, Paul, tell me about this other hobby we mentioned in the introduction. I read somewhere that you are an experienced apiarist. Which oh. is, it's a fancy word for beekeeper. Beekeeper, yeah, we've got a hive. Actually, uh, we uh, robbed it yesterday. Um, we got about 15 litres of honey out of it. Goodness me. Yeah. So we just give it away. Yeah. Mate, these hobbies have got to start somewhere. How the hell would you <laughs> would you become an apiarist? <laughs> um. We uh, used to uh, had a bit of land up at uh, Coomba, up at uh, Coomba there, and uh, mm-hmm. we were sort of growing pumpkins and stuff, just mucking about. We'd uh, grow them and give them to the old people's homes and things like that, and we thought, ah, oh, we'll get a better crop if we uh, get more bees, and that's how it sort of started. Goodness me. So we went, went and uh, had a place where they sell the hive and so it gives you the basics what to do when you yeah. <laughs> grab a book and go from there. Yeah. So mm. you still have a hive at home there yeah. at Runaway yeah. Bay? Yep. Yep. Well, when I when yeah. I get to Runaway Bay, mate, there might be a complimentary jar of honey there, will there? Yeah, there's a heap of it, I'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Yeah. Now, Paul, let's go back to your early life. Your parents were Jim and Faith. They were hard-working right. Melbourne people. They raised you and your only sibling, Sid, at Hampton, not far from yep. the CBD. You were seven or eight when they moved to Burwood. That's where you started mm-hmm. second grade. You left school yep. after eighth grade at age 14. And by then, teachers and friends were suggesting you should pursue a career as an apprentice jockey. You hadn't grown much. Yes, that's that's sort of yeah, that's about right. And then uh, <coughs> Dad was a uh, cleaner in town, and there was a chap who used to do his uh, clean his windows or something. Uh, mm. Fellow called Tommy Gathergood, who used to it was an ex jockey. Like he rode over in India and places like that. Mm. And um, <coughs> he that asked him, "Who do you think you should um, send uh, me to?" And he said, oh, there's a 
chap down at Mort Alec who's um, good with apprentices, well, my name is Jack Bazanko. And uh, mm. so that's how it sort of came about. Went down and uh, saw him, and uh, he uh, he was a little bit, uh, he said, I think he's going to have probably his feet and hands are too big. That was his first comment. And I, of course, yeah. that's what, anyhow, um, he took me on, and um, the rest is some sort of history, as they say. Yeah. When you um, first floated the idea about becoming mm. a jockey to mum and dad, what was their reaction? Um, they were sort of, uh, well, they wanted me to stay at school, of course. Um, mm. I'd had a pony since I was about nine or ten because there was a 14-acre paddock next to where we lived in Burwood and I used to keep her there. And uh, I just, I don't actually know what, what I just thought I'd give it a go. Yeah. <laughs> and that was um, how it eventuated. Have a yeah. crack. <laughs> yeah, have a go. That's right. <laughs> well, you were signed up in 1962, and mm. that was about the time Jack Basanko was training a very good stayer called Grand Print who won a Sydney Cup, he was placed in a Caulfield Cup and he was placed in a Melbourne Cup. You were around then. You probably didn't get to ride him work, but you'd remember the horse. Wasn't he a tough customer? He was. Um, I did um, – I used to ride him oh, – after I'd been down there about 12 months, they, I used to get led round on the pony because he used mm. to pull hard mm. and uh, – Jumps jockey used to ride him fast mornings <clears throat> by the name of Regis Jennings. Mm-hmm. And I'd ride him um, slow mornings. Young Jack, that was Grumpy's um, son, mm-hmm. he'd uh, he'd ride the pony and lead me around on him. Yeah, he was a big horse, big mm-hmm. bay horse. Mm. Mm-hmm. Now, you said Grumpy's son. Grumpy yeah. being the popular nickname of your master, Jack Basanko, did he deserve that rather disrespectful nickname? Oh, no, no, not at all. Um, I think I think it was all front. He was uh, a bit of a pussycat, really. He was uh, <laughs> <laughs> he, no, he was a hell of a nice bloke. The whole family were all mm. when you because, uh, as I, so I say, young Jack, he had uh. Three boys himself, they, they would have been, I would say, 14. Mm. Neil would have been, I would say, 12. Raymond, mm. 10. And Barry, um, 8 or something like that. Mm. So, you know, when when you let, <laughs> there was another apprentice with me at one time and another time there was three of us. Mm. Or, you know, a family having <laughs> six kids in the, in, in the house. Yeah. Because, you know, they'd, uh, you'd live in, well, they have a bungalow, but, you know, yeah. you'd eat in the house and treat you like one of their own. Yeah. Pretty, pretty, uh, pretty big effort, really. So Mrs. Basanko had the biggest job. Yeah, that's not <laughs> Grumpy's wife. Oh. <laughs> that's young Jack. Jack and Ivy. Her name was Ivy Basanko. Oh, I beg your pardon. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Not, not, uh, he used to just, he, he lived up around the corner. He mm. used to ride a bike. He used to ride a bike. Going from his house down to the stables. Did you? <laughs> no, he did. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Now, the I first thrilling experience of your initial race ride 
came in late 1963 on a horse called Prince Pirate at Mornington, trained by your boss, and you were kind enough to send me a lovely old black and white photo of you and Jack Pasenko before you mounted up, and I'm going to bung that photo onto the website next week. It's a cracker. <laughs> I don't know whether I look nervous or what, but I'm holding the whip a bit funny, I think. <laughs> <laughs> no, worth a yeah. look. It's a lovely photo. Yeah. I, he, uh, when I came in after I rode him, he said, where'd you run? I said, I counted three in front of me, boss. He said, that's right, you ran fourth. <laughs> so, he's, he's, <laughs> so his next start was at Caulfield at a, a six-foot-long race, mm-hmm. and I come charging down the railway side in the middle of them, and next minute the turns upon me. I hadn't been to Caulfield before. Mm-hmm. I took this horse halfway up, off the track. <laughs> we pull up, and I'm saying, what happened there? I'm trotting back, and <clears throat> Jack Curtell trotted up alongside me and said, Dash you, Paul. I could nearly swear <laughs> he was the bloke on the outside. <laughs> oh, was he? Jack Pertell, who never swore. No, no. no. He was Mr Pertell then, but, uh, yeah, another yeah. nice bloke. Oh, what a legendary name. He became a stipendiary steward later. Mm. He, he went overseas not long after that. And mm. I usually tell people, oh, the cause of it. <laughs> I haven't run him off the track. <laughs> <laughs> At Caulfield, eh? That's your yeah, second yeah. race ride. That was your second race ride. That's all right. Now, Paul, it took you 33 rides before your first winner came up, and you were telling me that by then you had despaired of ever riding a winner. You, you were wondering if you'd pulled the right rein. Yes, that's right. I'd, I'd go to apprentice school and uh, all the other apprentices were riding winners, and uh, I was sort of lucky enough, I was uh, riding horses for Tez and George McCormick and they had um, hurdlers and yeah. and you'd, I was sort of getting experience all the time mm. and so eventually when the opportunity did arise, um, you know, I had a bit of an idea where I was going. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Now, your first winner for Des McCormick was Coltara. And I find this quite unusual. It was in a 13 furlong race at Werribee. Now, most kids, Paul, win their first race on a leader in a five furlong mm. scamper. Yes, yeah. Well, that, that's, um, you know, what I was sort of saying. Um, I sort of had some idea where I was going by then. And, uh, mm. yeah, he got up on one and... Then, um, you know, things started to fall into place. Mm, certainly did. Max C was your first city winner. He was a 100 to 1 pop, trained by mm. George McCormick, who was Dez's cousin. That was yep. at Caulfield in June of 1964. Max C. Yes, that's right. Because um, uh, I think the third or the fourth might have been Coltara mm. when I went on him. And. Um, now, I, uh, I won a couple of races up the bush uh, for Andy White, a horse called N-Star, and um, I think on that same day I won on Max Elmer and third in a, another division of the same race mm. on him. But um, it was oh, only a couple of weeks after that, um, I, it was a pick-up ride, a horse called Lord Orpen, 
for a mentone trainer called Papa Dale. Mm. And it, I won four in a row on him. Mm. And that really got the ball rolling. Mm. From then on, you know, you know, I was getting rides for everybody. Mm. I'm going to embarrass you now by stating that you were truly a champion apprentice. And if anybody doubts that claim, consider the fact that Paul Jarman won three straight Melbourne Apprentices Premierships in the mid-1960s. Only Geoffrey Lane and Darren Gauchy are credited with more junior titles. Yeah, uh, good company. Oh, I'll say. Now, your achievements in the junior ranks in Melbourne earned you a place in an invitation jockeys race at Morfordville in October 1966, and it was a hot field. John Miller, Skeeter Sanders, Jim Johnson, John Stocker, Harry White, Mick Gorham, even Grenville Hughes from New Zealand accepted an invitation. You were 18 Mm. years old. You won the race on Roman Duo. I bet uh, the chess was puffed out for a few days after that one. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, actually, it was especially the first time I'd, uh, well, I hadn't been to Adelaide before, and uh, it, the, the good part about it, the, they raced the same way as Melbourne, so oh, yeah. I was able to uh, get around. But he, uh, he was uh, top weight. I was a bit lucky. I'd been riding, uh, well, winning on a horse called Redwood Park. George McCormick trained it, and mm. Mr. and Mrs. Cleveland, Bob and Doris. Uh, Cleveland owned Bedwood Park, and um, it's usually apprentices they get the bottom weights in these races because they're usually the lightest. And anyhow, I don't know how it happened, but I ended up on number one, mm. and he duly saluted. Mm. Oh, yeah. duly saluted is right. Now, you were kind enough to send me a lovely photo, a group shot of all the jockeys who rode in that race taken, I presume, in the mounting enclosure. Looked to be a lovely sunny day and some very famous faces there. And, Paul, with your permission, I'll post that photo on the website as well. No worries. I'm taking a lot. Now, you were still an apprentice when the distinguished trainer, Ken Hilton, paid you a great compliment by putting you on Savoy in the 1967 Victoria Derby. Ken, of course had previously trained the legendary Galloper Lord. Had you been riding Savoy leading up to that derby? I had one on him. Um, I think it was, uh, it was either that lead-up race, uh, that 10 furlong race at Caulfield, I think it might have been. Caulfield or Mooney Valley, one of them. Mm. And um, so I had rode him prior to that. And uh, we... Yeah, won the derby, which was uh, unbelievable. Well, what are your memories of the race? Um, I was um, settled back um, like I was in the second half of the field and uh, I was able to move out halfway down the straight and um, he just uh, mowed him down and won. Mm. And yeah. add, adding to your satisfaction was the fact that the runner-up in that derby was a very good Sydney horse called Roman Consul and the jockey was the great George Moore. Yes, yeah. Um, it was, yeah, I didn't really... Uh, I didn't remember that now. 
Mm. Yeah, is that right? Yeah, and Raymond Consul was a great weight for age horse in Sydney. I think yeah. the Chelmsford Stakes might have been his race. I think he won three or four Chelmsford Stakes, Roman Consul. Very good horse. Mm. And he ran second to you in the derby. Now, we'll just stay yeah. with your elite level wins for the moment, Paul, and we'll jump ahead to the spring of 1970 when the legendary trainer Jeff Murphy put you on Abdul in the WS Cox Plate. You'd ridden him several times before. In fact, you knew him pretty well. Yes, yeah, that's right. Um, I, I, I think I end up in about well, eight or nine races on him. Mm. And uh, he, uh, they were getting him ready for the uh, derby and um, he was either going to run in the bars or the Cox Plate and so they decided to run him in the Cox Plate and lo and behold, up he got and won. Oh, my word, on a soft track. Yes, that's and right. Yeah. You and Jeff decided to capitalise on his lightweight and get going early. I think you took off at the school, didn't you, at Mooney Valley? That's right, yeah. I was uh, trotting and uh, I thought, just catch me if you can. And off I went. Mm. Yeah. He loved the soft track. He Tails mm. ran second, Paul, destined mm. for greatness. So you, ever. you were 22. A Cox Plate win at 22 was very good for your career. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Yes. And uh, oh, any any win, but uh, no, that was good. But uh, he pulled too. He went, went on to run in the derby, but he uh, he didn't settle. He over-raced and mm. but he, he couldn't get the mile and a half anyhow. Mm. He was by sovereign addition. Yeah. Jeff Murphy was probably the first Victorian trainer to give the sovereign additions a, a very good go, didn't he? He had a number of them. He did. He did. He had another good one after that, Andros. Mm. And uh, then he had to surround. Mm. And, uh, yeah, no, they were good, good to him. Now, before we leave Jeff Murphy, he was a class trainer. His record suggests that. But he wasn't the easiest bloke to ride for in races. His reputation preceded him when it came to post-race reaction. He could blow up. Yeah, yeah. I suppose colourful. <laughs> if, if he wasn't happy, it'd usually start off, you've got to be kidding me, <laughs> and finish with, you imbecile. <laughs> but, uh, then in between, but, but then after it was all done and dusted and that, he was, uh, he'd calm down and he'd be all right. Yeah, you got on better yeah. with him than a lot of jockeys, didn't you, at the time? Yeah, well, I, I rode for him, I suppose, four or five years. Mm. And, uh, yeah, we know we had a little, lot of success, a lot of, lot of luck. Mm. Mm. You mentioned a horse's name a moment ago there, Andros. Now, I'm going to bring up an unpleasant memory. You rode Andros for Jeff Murphy in the 1971 Golden Slipper won by Fairy Walk and George Moore. You're box-seating yeah. all the way to the turn. You're absolutely bolting coming around the corner. You take it from there. Uh, I was following uh, Captain Hayes, Frank Rays. Uh, yeah, Captain Hayes, Frank Rays was riding it, and yeah, we shipped off the fence and... Mm. Uh, I went to race up on his inside and come back over 
and it was posting rail fences, uh, rail then, and uh, put me half over the fence and hit me foot on the upright and smashed all my toes and uh, sort of come down the street hanging around his neck and <laughs> fell off at the winning post. And, uh, yeah, so that put me out of business there. Yeah. yeah. Paul, it's easy to say 50 years on that that slipper of 71 got away from you, but you have oh. never deviated from uh, the assertion that Andros would have won that slipper. You've never been more sure of anything. Oh, no. I, oh, he was going as good as any horse I've ridden in a race at mm. the time when it happened. Mm. But uh, unfortunately, it wasn't to be. Mm. 52 years ago, can you believe? <laughs> no, that's all right. Oh, dear. Yeah. You, you rode in a, an era of great riders in Melbourne. And like many young jockeys of that time, Roy Higgins was your idol and your inspiration. And Roy, the great Roy, the professor, took an interest in young Paul Jarman's career. Yes, he did. Um, he uh, he gave, gave me uh, one of his suits to wear to the races, my first race in town. Did I he? didn't have one. And uh, I had to take it up to the... Uh, Taylor or whatever he was, and uh, cut a bit off the legs and uh, do a few alterations. I'll yeah. never forget it. It was sort of like a iridescent blue colour. I've been mean, looking like yeah. a rock star <laughs> having <laughs> my first ride in town. Yeah. <laughs> mm. So you probably uh, no. He was good. No, I, I liked Roy. Yeah. I what, what a wonderful bloke. And all these mm. years on. Uh, yep. You just never hear, uh, you know, an unflattering word spoken about Roy Higgins in any sector of the industry. No, no, he was uh, no, a hell of a nice bloke. Him and Janine, yeah, very mm. nice. You were riding for an Epsom trainer called Bill Walk in the early yep. 1970s and mm. it, it seems to me that his horses were not the only thing you were keeping an eye on. No, no, you're right there. Yeah, um, it took me a while, but anyhow, uh, yeah, I ended up marrying his daughter. <laughs> yeah. You sure did. Yeah, fifty years ago, uh, last year actually. Golden anniversary. Yeah. Mm. Now, before you married Lynn, your future father-in-law got you to come to a place called Wood End one day to ride four of his horses. I think it was the final meeting ever on the Wood End track and all four won. What a day. Yes, it certainly was. Uh, double, uh, double Irish won the Wood End Cup. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, it was a memorable day, all right. And then it was the last meeting there at Wood End. Mm-hmm. And, and then he went on and uh, I think he, he might have won at Flemington. Might have had a bit of a let up, and then he ended up uh, winning the Mooney Valley Cup. This is double uh, Irish. Double Irish, yeah. Mm. And then uh, in that piping lane run, third in that race. Mooney Valley Cup, that, and you rode him in that? I rode double Irish, yeah. Yes, right. Yeah. And then, he's, <clears throat> then he ran in the Melbourne Cup, um, which piping lane won. Mm. Uh, I ran fourth. 
Uh, he loomed up as if he was going to win, but uh, yeah. mm. just couldn't get the two mile. And Gunsin beat me ahead for third. Yeah. I went out all the way down the straight with Gunsin. Yeah. Now, Gunsin couldn't run two miles either, Paul. Higgins told me once he was struggling at the half mile and he still managed to run third. What sort of a heart did he have, the gun yeah. to Oh, that's right, yeah. He, he, he just kept coming on something. Yeah, mm. he certainly did. Yeah. And Queen Elizabeth battled. Stakes was run at Randwick on Saturday, uh, which was Gunsin's last start. It is 50 years exactly since Gunsin's final race start. Is that right? Yep. Yeah, I, I didn't realise that. You went around 12 or 13 times all up in the Melbourne Cup with little luck. I think you ran fourth on one other occasion, didn't you, on Horberg? On Horberg, I ran fourth um, to uh, Iperno. Yep, 79. Yeah. Mm. 79, yeah. And then uh, um, actually it wasn't a bad year because I won the derby on the Saturday on uh, Big Print. Yes. And then, uh, but I turn over then, um, Horberg, then he came out and uh, blitzed him in the Sandown Cup. Yeah. Um, fortnight or so later. Yeah. What a privilege for any jockey to ride in that race on that incredible day, and you went around 12 or 13 times. Yes, yeah, no, it's, uh, it's sort of exciting, you know, it's. Uh, you're not sort of nervous, it's more controlled excitement, mm. like, you know, going down the race, everyone's sort of yelling and screaming and <laughs> you're trying to keep your horse as quiet as you can and, mm. yeah, no, it's a great experience. Just stand by there, Paul. We're going to clear a commitment on the podcast. When we come back, we'll profile some of the other lovely horses you got to ride and we'll talk about your first overseas trip. Back with Paul Jarman. After this, it's hard to believe 17 years have passed since the Hawkesbury Race Club broke new ground with a standalone Saturday race meeting. It took the persistence and the negotiating skills of CEO Brian Fletcher to convince Racing New South Wales that a club which contributed so significantly deserved an opportunity to stand alone one day a year. A fine day and a strong program brought a big crowd to the famous Clarendon course on Saturday the 24th of April 2006. The Free Stater won the Hawkesbury Guineas for Paul Cave and James Innes Sr. Fighting Fun won the Rowley Mile for the late Guy Walter and Cathy O'Hara, while Barberton won the Woodlands Crown for Charlie Britt and jockey Brent Stanley. Riding honours went to the great Jim Cassidy with a treble in consecutive races. It's on again on Saturday, April 22nd, when the Hawkesbury Club will present the Group 3 Hawkesbury Gold Cup, the Group 3 Hawkesbury Guineas, the Group 3 Hawkesbury Crown and the listed gold rush of 1,100 metres. Sweet Deal won the Hawkesbury Crown in 2021, just a few months after winning the Hunter. The most notable Hawkesbury Guineas winner was Chautauqua in 2014, while Arcademus won two Hawkesbury Cups with the 2020 gong sandwiched in between. It will seem little different to the normal Saturday Metropolitan race meeting. All of the big guns will be seen in action 
on a beautifully prepared race course. This is the day they said would never happen. Provincial racing on a Saturday unopposed near the foothills of the Blue Mountains. Hawkesbury stands alone on Saturday, April 22nd. He won the JJ Liston Stakes in 1971 on a marvellous old horse called Torto, who was trained out of town by a man called Bob Agnew. This must have been shortly before he won the Cox Plate. Um, I think the Liston's uh, run about August. Yeah, 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 it must have been. Um, he, was, he was a great, great old horse. Um, he won some races, Torto. I didn't ride him in, um, all the time, but, mm. uh, yeah, no, he, he was a great horse to ride. Mm. And he was trained out of town by uh, Bob Agnew, who it really ran a, a one-horse show, didn't he, for a lot of the time? He did. He was down at Uncold. Uh, there, um, just, as I said, the foot of the grampians there, yeah. Mm. Yeah. I think fellow named Mr. Remfrey could have owned him. Yeah. This was about the time you got to ride a very good horse called All Shot for Ian Saunders. All Shot raced until he was nine. He won 21 all up. Very talented horse, but probably not a model ride, Paul. He liked to get back in his races, didn't he? Yeah, you you could settle him. If if he saw daylight, he'd start pulling and he he wouldn't finish off his races. But if you get him covered up um, straight away, he'd uh, drop the bit and... Uh, oh, he'd come home hard, all right. Mm. He used to poke his tail straight up in the air. You'd see him coming like a flag waving as he took <laughs> off. Yeah. yeah, I remember him, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, he was, he, was a, he was a great horse. Now, you got an irresistible offer in 1973, and that was the opportunity to ride in Ireland under retainer to Kevin Prendergast, who seemed to have a very strong liking for Australian jockeys. So off you went, you and Lynn, to the Emerald Isle, and you stayed there for two very good seasons. Yeah, no, I, uh, oh no, I enjoyed, enjoyed it over there in Ireland. Um, I kept Kevin, I've got a funny feeling he was born in Australia. His father might have been a jump jockey, you know, back in the forties or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, like it, they we went back to Ireland and was brought up there. Mm-hmm. And that, but uh, no, he was a good trainer. Had a you know a lot of luck with him. You were delighted to win one of Ireland's most famous races, the St Ledger, on a horse called Connor Pass, who would later take you to England. The St Ledger in Ireland is still a prized race, isn't it, for owners and trainers? Yeah, he's yeah. And after he won that, <clears throat> he got a invitation to go to America to run in the Laurel International. Mm. So uh, we went over there with him, but uh, got withdrawn on the morning of the race. Uh, we had an elevated temperature, so they had to withdraw him. I think Dahlia beat LA France in the race. Oh, Dahlia, great mare. Bill Pyers rode her, didn't he? That's right. Mm. Mm. I think well, you rode fifty winners in both seasons that you spent in Ireland. 
Yeah, uh, 49 one year and 50 the next or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Did you come back to Australia a better jockey? Oh, I have no doubt. Um, just the way, uh, you know, watching the way other jockeys ride, the English jockeys ride, and you try and put the uh, put put them both together. But, uh, yeah, I come back appreciating the uh, Australian racetracks. <laughs> when you, you, go, you go somewhere, a place like Clonmel or something, the races yeah. at the finish, you'd say to yourself, now, where wouldn't you build a race course here? And you'd see the side of a hill or something, and that's exactly where the race course would be. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You got to ride in three very famous races in England. Firstly, the Coronation Cup at Epsom Downs. Now, there was a track you found a bit curious. Yes. Oh, I got the shock of my life, actually. It's sort of when you look at it on TV, you think it's nice and flat and everything, but it's all this rigid furrow. Um, you sort of got to get your horse into the right rhythm there, otherwise you're in a lot of trouble. Mm. But uh, no, that was good. Yeah. You rode in a very famous race, the Two Thousand Guineas at Newmarket. Horse called Ragapan must have been yeah. a privilege, Paul, to go around in an historic <laughs> race on a on a wonderful racetrack. Yeah, yeah well, it's a straight mile there, mm. um, and uh, you sort of go out of sight and come back over the hill one. <laughs> yeah, no, it was. Yeah, no, it was a great experience. Now, you rode your Irish and Ledger winner, Connor Pass, in the famous King George the Sixth and Queen Elizabeth Stakes at Royal Ascot. With no result, but you did share a very brief conversation with the late Queen. Yes, that's right, yes, we... Uh... We'll come out into the mountain yard and uh, just sort of stand there. And she comes along and gets introduced to uh, my little jockey. She said to me, she said, oh, oh, you're the Australian jockey. How are you enjoying it over here? I said, oh, having a great time, ma'am. Thank you. Mm. Well, mm. you got back to Melbourne and you quickly picked up where you'd left off and things were going swimmingly until you hit a snag one day at Pakenham. In 1975, you ran second on a horse who'd been trying to win a maiden for ages and the stewards were of the opinion you hadn't displayed enough vigour in the closing stages. You had no opinion of that horse. Yeah, he, we, we, um, I tried riding vigorously with whips. He sort of, the harder you rode him, he put his head up and sort of float back towards you and he had this, the day of Pakenham, we thought we'd try and cuddle him to the line. Anyhow, uh, <laughs> the stewards were under the opinion that they cuddled him too much. Mm. And, uh, yeah, they uh, disqualified me for playing up uh, for 12 months. Mm. But uh, we agreed to disagree, mm. but they won. Mm. What did you do for 12 months? Um, I... Uh, uh, went fishing. <laughs> yeah. I uh, I'd packed up a car after everything had settled down, drove up up to the end of the bitumen, up to the Daintree, up to Cairns, mm. as far as you go. And then I uh, I came back, gradually came back to Melbourne, mm. hung around for a while. I was, uh, 
riding a few horses for a fellow called uh, Ian Saunders, trained from Jim Rackavolis. He had the fish markets mm. down in Melbourne, and he was starting a prawn farm over in South Australia. And as a chap who used to get fish for, like to go uh, selling the market, plus get him bait to feed these prawns and whatever. So he said, why don't you, uh, Ben Sims was his name, he said, why don't you go over and see him? He'll take you fishing. So off we went, drove over there at uh, Port Broughton, Spencer's Gulf. Mm. So we had this sort of converted, it was a trawler, it had been a, uh, a tuna boat and a, then a prawn trawler. Mm. And now he was uh, snapper fishing. So <laughs> on the way out, I said to him, do you think we'll get in? He said, oh, yeah, two or three. I thought, geez, I've come a long way to get two or three. Mm. We got three ton of snapper. Good. Never seen so many snapper. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you went pulling them up two at a time, he'd move. Mm. <laughs> yeah, 15 pounds, 30 pounds. I could hardly drag them over the edge. <laughs> well, mate, that break, that complete break, did you the world of good because when you got back, you never stopped riding winners. And fast forward to the late 70s and a very astute trainer called Andy White teamed you up with a horse called Big Print who would become your second Victoria Derby winner in 1979. How was you going coming into the Derby in which Tommy Smith had Two outstanding three-year-olds. Yeah, um, he, he, he was going good actually, but he, the he only blemish he had, he went to Geelong and ran in the Geelong trial, mm. Derby trial. He couldn't handle, or he didn't handle going down the hill, and um, that sort of, you know, took the shine off him a bit. But mm. um, no, because I think. Uh, Mighty Kingdom might have been his other horse. He'd have won the Caulfield Cup, hadn't it, if I remember right? And Which one? King, Mighty Kingdom. Yes, he had. Think, He'd won the Caulfield Cup, yeah. Yeah, I think Malcolm, was Malcolm Johnson might have rode him? Yes, he and, did. Mm. And Roy rode Kingston Town. Anyhow, uh, we in the Derby had a lovely run. I was able to dash through and hold off Kingston Town by a head on the lawn. So, mm. uh, no, it was a... Pretty exciting time. And even more exciting when you consider Kingston Town's subsequent deeds. He, he oh. never won at Flemington, Paul, Kingston Town. Four starts, no wins. Yes, yes. Uh, I was glad he never won one day anyhow. No. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, but uh, oh, no, what a great horse. Mm. Arguably one of the best I've seen. Yeah. Mm. You had a nightmare uh, experience on big print in the 1980 Melbourne Cup won by Belldale Ball. What happened? Yes. Um, <clears throat> we were going there, well, just coming to the winning post the first time. and I thought he broke a leg or something. Something was, went, just went terribly wrong. And um, I was able to sort of stay where I was on the fence. I was running sort of midfield. Mm. And the field got past me. And then I... Staggered him across to the outside, just past the winning post, the outside rail, mm. and he just collapsed sideways and I stepped off him. Oh, yeah. And um, I, I went to lay on his neck because I didn't want him jumping up in front of the field coming down the straight um, oh, the no. next time. And uh, I just touched his eye. He didn't blink. He was stone dead. Oh, dear me. 
Yeah, so it was a a long, lonely walk up that race with a saddle and no horse, I can tell you. I bet it was, yeah. Mm, yeah, no, very sad. Another great trainer, Paul, who appreciated your talents, was the late Bob Hoisted, a man who all but slept with his horses. Now, yeah. You won a lot of good races for him. Tell me about the Goodwood Handicap in Adelaide on Heavenly Time, 1982. Yeah, he, he, he was a very fast horse, Heavenly Time. I won a couple of, uh, like, 1,000 metre races or 5 furlong races on him. And in his lead-up, I think it might be the Mackay Stakes, his lead-up race, and mm. over there, he, uh, he was leading... And I thought, and I let him go at the top of the straight, and he got run over the last bit. And I thought to myself, <clears throat> I've let this horse go too soon. So in the Goodwood, he was leading. I was just able to hold him up a little bit longer, mm. and um, he, you know, ran out the twelve hundred metres, um, six furlong. Um, you know, yeah, excellent. Yeah, he's a great horse. Had you not had that previous ride on him, Paul, that may not have happened, a good would win. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, yes, de- definitely. And hmm. just getting the feel of the track and, um, yeah, understanding it a bit better. Yeah, hmm. that's right. Hmm. Perhaps Mr Ironclad was your favourite horse from the Bob Hoisted stable. I think you won a two-rack handicap on him. You won a Sandown Guineas on him. And here's an interesting one. You rarely rode in Sydney and you're credited with just one win here. It was the 1984 Farlap Stakes on Mr. Ironclad. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, he, uh, he, he, was, he was a good horse um, to me. Yeah, mm. He certainly was. I'd, uh, I'd, I'd rate, even as a premise, I'd rate a lot of winners for... Bob always said, mm. and um, then uh, I think uh, Gary Willis was riding, you know, he uh, was riding for him, and uh, I sort of somehow come along to get, get on Mr. Ironclad, so uh, yeah, uh, um, I had a lot of luck on him. You're in the right place at the right time. Yes, I'd be right. You've always had a soft spot for Sandown. You won on Boats Harbour on the opening day of the track in 1965 when 52,000 people packed into the place and the toilets broke down. (laughs) It was bedlam. It was. It certainly was. They just weren't expecting that crowd, I don't think. There was only the one road in and... um, no, it was certainly a day to remember. Mm. They, they tell me the traffic jam from Melbourne to Sandown was unbelievable. Yeah, well, uh, I remember right. Uh, Brian Gilders was supposed to ride the first lap um, race winner, but he, he couldn't get there in the traffic, and I think Bobby Jury might have rode a horse for work of art. Goodness me, yeah. Yeah, mm. But he, he wasn't the first winner at Sandown. Some people say that mm. there was a hurdle race was the first race, and I think Peter Murray might have won on something in that. Yeah. But, uh, mm. Well, Sandown's still going. 
Paul, as yes. we know, but hanging on by the skin of its teeth. I think there's a very intense consultation taking place right now with the racing industry and uh, I think there's a hell of a lot of people, trainers principally, who love to see it retained. Yeah, it's a fantastic track. You know, every horse um, has a chance there. Um, now it's a great track. You seem to have received a really big kick by winning the 1984 Tasmanian Derby at Elwick on a horse called Sobriquet. What was so special about that? Um, I, I'd, I'd won a, a couple of races on him over here, and um, he uh, we went he went over and uh, it was a short prize favourite, and uh, he won, and then uh, unfortunately uh, in the two rack I won on uh, Mr Ironclad, uh, he. he well, and uh, got put down in that race. So, oh, dear uh, me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But he, no, he was a good horse, great horse. Now, getting towards the end of your career, you got to ride a horse called Zephyr Cross for the remarkable Alan Yeomans, mm. former good jockey who'd won the Caulfield Cup on Sir Blink in 1958. Alan was left a paraplegic after a race fall at Pakenham in 1960. Two years later, he was a three-time medal winner at the Commonwealth Paraplegic Games in Perth. And later on, Paul, as you know, he became the first paraplegic to become a licensed horse trainer in Australia. Zephyr Cross started at 140 to 1 in the Ascot Vale Stakes. Were you as shocked as most people? Um, he he uh, had uh, trial well. He, he went over to uh, Flemington the week before and uh, he was in a barrier trial there. Uh, was, uh, what was favourite? Was it bounding away in that race? Mm. Might have been favourite. Yeah. I'm just trying to think. Anyhow, uh, I was sort of just sitting behind it and... Uh, Friend of mine, well, a bloke I owned it was a bloke called Jock Hurley, and uh, he was he had pubs in Melbourne and Adelaide, and uh, I was uh, I said said to him, Jesus horse uh, trial well, Jock, and uh, anyhow, uh, lo and behold, have you gotten one? <laughs> <clears throat> now that race, the Ascot Vale, I think it was a Group Two then. It is now known as the Coolmore Stud Stakes. It's a Group One and a very important race. Yeah, yeah, they uh, yeah they sort of changed the calendar around a bit, but racing is just sort of going ahead and leaps and bounds at the moment, isn't it? Mm, I'll say. About mm. a year later, you'd reconnected with Jeff Murphy, and you won a race for him at Flemington on a horse called Dead of Night. You were delighted to ride him again at Sandown a couple of weeks later, but it turned out to be the ride that brought down the curtain on your career. A fall. What was yeah, the injury I, list? Um, I cracked my pelvis and crushed uh, three vertebrae, <clears throat> and uh, I wasn't getting a lot of uh, rides at the time. I, I, I had... Um, sort of giving it away six months prior to all this, 
Then I came back and uh, had a, had a couple, well, a few winners, not much, and it was getting harder and harder all the time my weight. And then uh, Ted put me on uh, Dead of Night. I went on him at Flemington, and then his next start, he fell at um, Sandown. And <clears throat> after rehabilitation and that, I was sort of said, oh, I think I've had enough of this. Mm. And uh, I just, because I'd always wanted to come up to Queensland, so uh, I said to Lynn, I said, I think I've had enough. Mm. And that was sort of it. Mm. You missed it for a little while, obviously. Oh yes, yeah. Oh, I, I follow my very uh, every Saturday now, mm. um, but uh, it was just you know either make a, I was going to make a decision, and the kids were just starting school, so I thought mm. it's a good time to if I'm going to do something, um, go, and yeah. which I did. You and Lynn have two great kids, Ben and Tammy who between them, and correct me if I'm wrong here, have given you six grandchildren. I'll just run That's the right. names past you, mate. Emily, Mackenzie, Stephanie, Tyrrell, Zayden and Mariah. That's right. Mm. Yeah, yeah, no, they're all good kids. Yeah, no. But all no, in Queensland, Paul? They're all up yep. there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I guess around the corner. <laughs> mm, lovely. Yeah, yeah, no, they're all good. Well, this interview was generated by your great mate, Stan Aitken, who said, you've got to get Jarman on the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm glad he did because he was right and it's been a delight uh, being able to make it happen, Paul. You left your mark on Melbourne racing in an era of wonderful jockeys. Congratulations on a great career. And thanks Thanks for giving us so much time on, on this podcast. It's been lovely to catch up. Thanks very much, John. No, no worries. Anytime. Paul Jarman was our special guest on a podcast produced by Supernova Sound. Australian trainers are giving Pride's Racing Cube the thumbs up. These small but powerful extruded cubes provide the ultimate muscle fuel to help horses finish their races off while promoting gut health. Racing Cube is a set recipe formulation in which the same premium quality proteins and essential amino acids are used in every batch produced. Racing Cube's profile and digestibility allows you to feed approximately two to three kilos less per day than similar raw grain rations. It's salt-free to help reduce irritation if you've got a horse prone to stomach ulcers. Mornington trainer Jason Warren introduced his horses to Racing Cube early this year and is delighted with the results. We've had a great deal of success since making that change. So really pleased with Pride's and not only the racing cubes, they've got a number of other feeds that work well for us. Pride's Racing Cube is available in the popular 25 kilo bag in bulk bags or straight into the silo if you prefer, giving you quality equine nutrition at a very economical price. Talk to your local rep about Racing Cube, another winner from the Pride's Easy Feed stable. Trainers are giving it the tick of approval all around the nation.